welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with David Zoll about his new book, Low Anthropology. It's a conversation about the expectations we set on ourselves and on others, and how recognizing and reckoning with human limitation, doubleness, and self-centeredness opens up space for both grace and growth. It's a conversation for anyone who feels burned out, who feels like they're the only one who is struggling, and we hope it blesses you. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Not long ago, I read a fascinating article in The New Yorker called Improving Ourselves to Death. The author, Alexandra Schwartz, charts the streams of the $10 billion a year self-improvement industry. She points out how the self-improvement industry has shifted from fuzzy optimism to concrete metrics. She writes, It's no longer enough to imagine our way to a better state of body or mind. We must now chart our progress, count our steps, log our sleep rhythms, tweak our diets, record our negative thoughts, then analyze the data, recalibrate, and repeat. End quote. In an age in which all our progress can be broadcast through social media, along with all the pictures of us living our best life, it can feel like our lives are being weighed and measured like never before. Metrics may bring accountability and a sense of accomplishment, but they can also bring anxiety with an ever-advancing finish line, where the numbers reinforce our sense that there is a fantasy self that we are failing to become. Indeed, if self-improvement is a sort of secular salvation, we should say that it is not enough to have a system. We also have to have provisions for what happens when we fail. Christians, of course, have provisions for failure. But sometimes it seems that we present failure as a feature of the past, as if our communities are organized around strength and success rather than weakness and failure. Within the church, as much as in the larger culture, we feel burned out and lonely, as if we are the only ones who can't do it all, who feel divided, who struggle, who fail. Author David Zoll writes about our high expectations for human improvement, and he diagnoses it as the problem of a high anthropology, an overestimation of what humans are capable of. And the antidote to a high anthropology, he writes, is a low anthropology, a realistic assessment of human nature in all its doubleness and depravity. This does not mean excusing our selfishness, nor does it mean giving up on holiness. But it may mean a shift in the way we see ourselves, the way we see our neighbors, and what actually can bring us together, our shared need for grace. We hope you enjoy this conversation with David Saul. Well, I'm joined now by a distinguished guest, David Zoll. David is the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries and author of the critically acclaimed book, Seculosity, and now a new book, which is the focus of our conversation today, Low Anthropology, The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself from Brazos Press. 
David, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me. So for the uninitiated, the title of your book, Low Anthropology, may take some getting used to. But if I'm following you, you mean something like our working model of human nature, especially when it comes to human potential for improvement or something like that. That's our anthropology. And so maybe the best way to get at the idea of what it means to have a low anthropology is to begin like you do, which is by describing the problems and pathologies of high anthropology. So Mm. what does a high anthropology look like? What does it feel like? And why is it a problem? Yeah, a high anthropology, well, it feels like sort of normal life, I think. (laughs) I think a high anthropology is sort of the air we breathe, uh, both internally and externally. But a high anthropology is a view um, of oneself that sort of has a, a, or of of human beings as sort of the only limits I have are the ones I place on myself. Mm. And that kind of, if I can just get the right mix of, you know, circumstance and motivation, then I can kind of achieve un, unforeseen or, you know, just incredibly amazing things. A high anthropology, though, I mean, that that's a bit of a caricature of it. I think the way that you can tell you're living in a, in a world that has embraced a high anthropology is by the the cultural conditions. Uh, one of them would be burnout, for example. And this is sort of what part of what the book was was born out of was the fact that everywhere, when I was writing it, everyone was talking about burnout. And I was writing it during the pandemic and mm. whatnot. But I was reading about graduate students being burned out, mothers of small children being burned out, retirees being burned out, middle schoolers being burned out, men in their 40s being burned out, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a across-the-board sense that life was just demanding too much of us, more than we could possibly handle, and that the response to that was a sort of a surrender, exhaustion, malaise, paralysis called called burnout. And that's a, that's a you know, a generalization, but there was a uh, there was a underlying notion that human beings are simply capable of more than they're actually capable of. Like the notion that I can do it all, or mm. you know, if you take it intellectually, the notion that I can know it all and can be completely certain about something, or that I can care about it all. I can care about everything that's happening around me. So mm. there was that's a that's one indication of a high anthropology that you've somehow embraced ideas about what human beings are capable of that they're actually not we're we're sort of limited by you know whatever it be time and and biology and uh just natural limits of our you know willpower etc the other one would be loneliness so um you know you're living in a world of high anthropology when Failure, trouble, sin, just weakness is aberrant. It's understood to be uncommon. And so that the normal state of things in a human being's life is sort of basic contentment. Uh, Normalcy is, is, I think, is is drawn to sort of like functioning well and, uh, you know, maybe not euphorically happy, but certainly doing okay. And therefore, any kind of need or grief or loss or simply uh, desperation was seen as like um, momentary blips of the human experience. Uh, And so, uh, that's a high anthropology understanding that leads to what I would say is a lot of loneliness. Because if you cannot be honest about yourself and you can be honest about your, you can certainly be honest about your achievements, but not your shortcomings. 
then then people never feel known. They never feel actually. Uh, they feel more alone. Actually, you know, if you're if you're only ever able to parade your the good things about your life in front of other people. And so that's how I would look at the problem of high anthropology. It, it also, you know, the us versus them mentality, uh, a high anthropology tends to break people down into categories. There are people like us and people like that. And mm. um, if only those people would get out of the way, then the good, the good folks could have their chance in the sun. Um, and, and therefore, a high anthropology gets very frustrated with when other people don't act the way that we think they should. And uh, uh, so if, if, if you're living in a world of high anthropology and you have these high expectations, uh, I've told so-and-so what to do, why won't they do it? And you don't take into account that everyone's dealing with all sorts of resistance. Well, then you start to really have disdain and contempt for other people. And so, I think you see that as well. So, those are three aspects of, a, of the problem of high anthropology. Yeah, there's an article I've used with students in class that surveys the world of self-help books called Improving Ourselves to Death. <laughs> and I've always loved that title. Um, and there's a quote in uh, in the article from Will Storr, who you also quote, that goes something like this, people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. Mm. So we have this idealized picture of ourselves, which then turns around and condemns us at every turn. And so how does embracing a low anthropology help maybe set us free from this fantasy self that we're failing to become that is always condemning us? Mm. That's an amazing quote. And I think that I've, I've read that quote in many different settings and I've always seen people like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, well, we, we life becomes a perpetual falling short of some imaginary idea we have of ourselves, of who we should be and who we're therefore capable of being, which just means that you can't make the actual data of your life which is that you, yes, you are some days you were that great version of yourself, but a lot of days you were, uh, you know, uh, struggling to get along or to just barely hanging on, and uh, you sort of have to start hiding that, or you have to rationalize it away, or look to condemn it in other people so that you feel better about yourself. I think a low anthropology would say that this is actually a universal. Everyone feels like they're an imposter. Absolutely everyone, if you get to know them, has some area of pain that they're thinking about more than they would ever let on. So, a low anthropology shouts loud and clear, you are not alone. It doesn't say that these things that you are experiencing are good or like, you know, therefore, because they're so universal or common, they're therefore like, uh, you know, blessed. But it does say that you are not the only one. Who is, who is dealing with this. And in fact, the, the hiding, the posturing can be a mammoth waste of time. And, but, you know, I, I don't know if we're as totally in control of ourselves. That's part of the, the book's premise is that we're not. And so, uh, I think a low anthropology simply proceeds from the starting point that bad behavior in other people is not necessarily the result of overt result of malice or insanity, that there's other things going on with other people. So, there's a slight withholding of judgment when it comes to other people. And then when it comes to yourself, there's a slight withholding of judgment because you, you no longer feel like you're the great exception to the human yeah. project. Mm. Yeah, there's a solidarity there that's found, as you say, in an unlikely place. And you mentioned imposter syndrome. I, I laughed many times while reading this book. 
But uh, there's this great cartoon that you mentioned at the beginning where all of these people are walking around on the street and they all have the same thought balloon. All these people really seem to have it all together. And then later in the book, you summarize uh, low anthropology, you say, similar to what you just said, it assumes that people are far more anxious, sensitive, obsessive, confused, insecure, and at odds with themselves than their appearance indicates. I know for myself, I've struggled with this imposter syndrome, which you mentioned in the book, uh, the sense I didn't go to the right schools. I'm sort of always trying to play catch up. And maybe if I get a PhD, I won't feel that way. And then maybe if I get a job at a university, then maybe if I write, you know, you sort of just kind of keep on going on thinking, oh, it's just around the corner, my sense of feeling like I'm going to catch up to everybody else. And I think a lot of us, like you said, walk around thinking that everybody else is doing okay. And we're the ones who are struggling, you know, or and we have all sorts of ways that we we deal with that. But yeah, how specifically would you th- say that low anthropology does it it normalizes imposter syndrome? Does it how does that help for the fact that all of us are kind of walking around with this deep insecurity that we think only we have and that nobody else does? Well, I think it's simply um, partly just comforting to know. Uh, that you're not the, again, you're not the single exception to the happiness of, of the, the crowd or something like that. And that uh, mm. when Jesus talks about the lost sheep, you know, the, the, or the, the one who left and the 99 who remain, you know, it's a rhetorical device from where I'm sitting. It's like everyone who ever hears that correctly thinks of themselves as the lost sheep. Mm. There's a great song by Mavis Staples uh, that Jeff Tweedy wrote called, uh, you're, you're Not Alone. Yeah. You're, you're Not yeah. Alone, I'm Lonely Too. Yeah. And I think that that's a, um, the, you know, we are the, uh, the fellowship of the lonely, you know, which is a kind of a oxymoron, but a beautiful one, or, you know, hypocrites anonymous, whatever you want to say. I think that whatever we can do to break down the walls of, uh, Anne Lamott talks about in terms of don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. And yet we're living in a, in a, in a time or circumstance and it's not completely fresh to this time period. It's just uh, quote unquote optimized right now where all we do is uh, compare our insides to other people's outsides. And the Mm. result is despair on a massive level and loneliness. And uh, so low anthropology, I hope can cut through that noise with empathy and not, not a sort of a cynicism about there's nothing great about you or you're not capable of amazing things, but that, but simply as uh, I consider low anthropology to be a comprehensive view the good and the bad are are sort of equally true about you or the 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 strong and the weak that they're just as it's just as normal to be sad to be bereft to be even angry than it is or to be full of you know anxiety as it is to be full of you know gratitude um yeah yeah to get maybe a little bit deeper in this you talk about low anthropology as being composed of three primary components mm-hmm. which is an awareness of limitation a sense of doubleness and self-centeredness. And you write a chapter about each of these elements. But I wonder if you could just briefly summarize each of these three pieces of limitation, doubleness, and self-centeredness. Uh, yeah, from a Christian point of view, when, I'm tra- when I talk about limitation, I'm talking about creatureliness, that there's a God and, and you're not him, you know, you're not he, excuse me. And that so there are firm limits on what you're capable of, but just by the nature of the fact that you need to sleep eight hours a day, or at least some 
element yeah. of it. you cannot be in two places at once as anyone with small children knows <laughs> um then there's limits on sort of what you can know as, as well you know there's uh, human beings by nature of being incomplete people situated in a specific time and place like we do not have access to the full truth uh, the act we i mean as a christian i believe god does but not me and so judgment any judgment i make will be uh, provisional like it just there's there's always one piece of evidence that might be missing. Doesn't mean you can't think strongly about things or have you know passion about certain uh, convictions, but it does mean that um, full final authority on basically anything under the sun is only uh, in in God's hands. Which I think mm. you know a lot of us struggle with terrible judgments we make of ourselves as well as other people and our our you know the person we're married to. And to the just the very anyway, so that's the limitation. Yeah, that there's always uh, we're incomplete. Second, doubleness is really my euphemism for conflictedness, or from a Christian perspective, sort of the bondage of the will, the agency issue, the Romans seven picture of life, where I know what I should do, but I seem to want to do the the opposite, or at least not. The higher the emotional stakes get, the less clear cut my motivations are. So so, or the more tied in knots I can become. So it's kind of the inside out, uh, that Pixar movie, that view of life, that everyone is a jumble of many different emotions. There's, you know, the conscience and the desire and the imagination and the, the, the heart and the, 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 the flesh, the spirit, whatever you want to call it. People are not totally free to always, it's, sometimes this has a more, uh, sometimes this doesn't have a moral dimension, sometimes it does. But if you ever dealt with addiction or depression, like the idea that I can just decide at any point to change uh, right. yeah. is, is, is just not, if you think people are, are, are free agents making rational decisions, you are going to hate them very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, doubleness or conflictedness is, is just descriptive of the fact that everyone has all sorts of competing motivations. Sometimes it's very easy to ch- make choices between things, but then when it comes to the stuff that really matters in life, it's hard. I can't just decide to like someone I don't like, or I can't just decide to love someone that I that's hurt me. I can't just decide. The great thing is, like, I can, you know, so and so has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Like, how many times have we heard that? We're conflicted. So then, thirdly, is self-centeredness, which is a euphemism for sin. So I'm, the book is not just a handbook about original sin. It's about all these things. It's about creatureliness and uh, the the willpower question, and then sin. So that's simply the idea that. The reality, I believe, that there is a dark side to human nature. That there is, there is something in us that sometimes wants to inflict pain. <laughs> and if you think that that human beings are by nature sort of always uh, interested in the other people, then either you've never had children, or B, like you're going to really come to be disappointed in them. So, <laughs> the the sin issue, which is, it's not just that we have limitations or that our desires are sort of out of sync. It's that we sometimes actively desire something that hurts our neighbor in, in a rebellion from God kind of way. Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And as as I read the book, I thought that some of the most powerful examples that you have were where communities or relationships are rooted and founded in this sort of shared recognition of vulnerability, shared recognition of weakness, hmm. shared recognition that we will hurt each other rather than an expectation of of strength and success. So like Alcoholics Anonymous, where you're sort of coming 
together around weakness. And yet these communities also make space for growth and change and are, you know, oriented towards freedom in some sense from addiction. And it's always struck me when we think about the sort of people that Jesus hung out with, you know, on the one hand, you have Jesus articulating the highest ethical standards imaginable, Mm -hmm. and then also creating this thick community of discipleship. And yet the most ordinary people, failures, sinners feel safe Mm. with him. And I've always said, what am, what am I missing? What are we missing? You know, in the way we articulate a life of discipleship so that people who, well, are all of us or who, who fail and are weak and don't think they can live up to it, don't feel safe mm. in those spaces. Can you help me make sense of that uh, from the perspective of low anthropology? A couple of different things. I'd say this, like the, the great thing about AA, and I, yes, I do use it as an example, but I've also seen this operate in church, really good churches, is that AA doesn't, uh, isn't um, premised on growth. And for that reason, it becomes a location of enormous growth and transformation. So what I mean to say is you go in there and every week you say you're an alcoholic and 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 people say, well, that's you're not getting anywhere. You know, what's next? But the truth is those are some of the most transformative communities you've ever seen. And you pe- see people walking around who've been sober for 40 years who say, I never, I was about on death's door. God did this for me. And so it's when some people say this sounds like a defeating or a negative view. What what the irony of a low anthropology is that it is actually the key to liberation and growth. I mean, it it puts the growth the growth element is in God's hands, and therefore it's more reliable and more truthful and more radical and creative and surprising. Uh, rather than being some of a sort of a partnership, which partnership almost always turns into a burden in practice. Mm-hmm. The So what I, th- I think that we're naturally, and I include myself in this number, we naturally err towards high anthropology because A, it flatters us, makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves on the front end. B, it gives us a sense of control. And it sort of says, yeah, if I know these things, I can do them and I can, I can, I can take charge of my own uh, personal journey. And uh, it's too scary to have it be in God's hands. So uh, I will, um, I will sum it. And Christians have a thing where they, they kind of, uh, the way, the reason people become Christians is because they're confronted with their low anthropology. They're confronted with their need and their limits and their conflictedness. And they want to offload the shame and the guilt and they hear the word of God's forgiveness and pardon through the blood of Christ, and they they get very excited about the second chance, the rebirth, uh, you know, however you want to put it, redemption. And then once you become a Christian, though, you sort of are somehow implicitly, usually it's not explicit, but somehow a new burden is put on the Christian, such that you know after in a, in a couple of years or maybe even immediately, but they they start to feel a new burden of shame and guilt, rather that the very place that they went to, to get rid of it is now put a new one on them. And Mm. that there's sort of a selectively high anthropology is how I would put it. And so we we must be on guard against that. I mean, we, we have Peter who even after he was reinstated, even after he'd been following Christ, then he's, Paul has to completely, you know, correct him in Galatians. I mean, it's God's amazing work in the world, which proceeds often without our say-so. And uh, and sometimes God can use our efforts and our cooperation, I think. But 
we once we start to believe that we are somehow contributing some important piece to it, then slippery slope is one way to put it, but it becomes a new law that I think um, can be counterproductive. Whereas, you know, the great saints of history, I'm convinced when I read their writings, I feel a sense of them not having climbed some new ladder of holiness. I feel like they, as, as they get older, they're, they're, they move in a deeper dependence on God, a, a, mm-hmm. a deeper sense of awe the, the, of, of God's overwhelming goodness and their own sort of insignificance. And they, they become less as God becomes more, that sort of thing. So that's what low anthropology is ultimately. That's the great hope, is the hope of, hope of God and God's grace and mercy and the Holy Spirit working in the world. Yeah, a couple of follow-ups to that. So I, I love the fact you said, okay, the communities of vulnerability like Alcoholics Anonymous or churches that are doing what they're supposed to be doing, or maybe, I don't know if that's <laughs> even the right way to say it. Now, you sort of question everything right now after, after what's the right way to say this? Um, but uh, you said growth is not in the center or growth is not the, the primary goal. What, what is? What, what is sort of the, the thing in the center? So if self-improvement or improvement or growth is not, the heart of that, mm. what what would you say is the the thing, the center around which transformation or around which solidarity occurs? Well, in a Christian setting, it's it's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I mean, I think it's worship of God. Like that's mm. what we're there to do. Uh, Martin Luther, you know, famously said in the first of the of the ninety five theses that the whole life of the believer is one of confession and absolution, mm-hmm. and we find that that is an enormous engine of gratitude and other centeredness. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it plays out differently. I was reading something from, I think it was Russell Moore writing Christianity Day about altar calls being the re- people roll their eyes about, Oh, I got saved 50 times when I was a, when I was a kid in youth group or something like that. But what, what's really going on there is the continual renewal of confession and absolution that a Christian mm-hmm. needs in order to sort of, uh, stay alive. And so I think that the center of the, the the faith, the center of the community is some sort of, um, is not me. It's, uh, Jesus and, uh, his, his shed blood, his resurrection, the hope that there is, uh, in, in that event and that, uh, truth. Mm. Thanks for that. Let me sort of push back a bit on this, or maybe just kind of ask this pushback question. Sure. So, as you've mentioned, low anthropology is not against aspirations to Christ-likeness. It seems to me it's suspicious of claims to have achieved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly opposed to formulas for mastery or self-improvement that allow us to feel like we're in control. But I'm curious uh, if you think that there are ways that low anthropology might go wrong. So, this is a low anthropology question to ask about low anthropology. Um, uh, you know, because it, it does seem, as I've talked about this book with other people, Almost always they'll say things like, well, scripture does seem to hold out these high standards. It has the hope of meaningful growth in our lifetime. It seems to provide pathways towards transformation. Uh, So is expecting success and sanctification necessarily low anthropology? Could it be a high pneumatology, a high estimation of what the spirit is able to do? Mm -hmm. Or is it also possible that more optimistic views of sanctification might be high anthropology masquerading as high pneumatology mm. and and how would we know the difference between that and how would we know when our talk of you know what god is going to do is actually more of just the way we talk about 
what we are going to do, you know, with God's blessing, that, that sort of thing. So it has two parts to the question. First, are what are the ways that you see low anthropology potentially going down the wrong road? And then the second one is, what do you do with um, the pushback that it seems like scripture has higher expectations than the ones that you are articulating in this? Those are great, great questions, and I'm, I'm, and I'm glad you asked them. No, uh, I, it's very much so, in fact. Well, I, I, a couple things to mention. I think a, a low anthropology goes hand in hand with a high Christology and a high or robust pneumatology. There's no okay. question about that. Uh, a low anthropology in and of itself can be a recipe for cynicism or nihilism. More nihilism. Cynicism is usually uh, you've you have come to some certain conclusions about other people, and a low anthropology um, actually says any any complete even if you've written the script ninety nine percent of the way there's still that point one percent that you cannot know. Like so, I don't think a low anthropology is synonymous with cynicism. Uh, it it is skeptical of human claims of improvement. That's for for certain. But I think the Bible is very skeptical. I think Saint Paul is deeply skeptical. Of, of, of and Jesus Christ himself, like the people he ran into trouble with were always those who were convinced of their own righteousness. They had the hardest mm-hmm. time dealing with him on any level. And um, so the I, I feel like I'm on solid ground in that regard. But a low anthropology, yes, it can go wrong when it becomes a, a excuse for cynicism or hopelessness or a vehicle of shame. I mean, one of the key lines in the book is that it is not shame-inducing or defeating to say that I cannot do it all or be it all or know it all. What is shame-inducing and defeating is the idea that I can, I just haven't pulled it off yet. That's what drives mm. people crazy. That sort of, it's, uh, the, it's, it's, it's not a low enough anthropology, usually, when you deal with people who are fleeing from legalistic backgrounds. What they've been told is, you're terrible, you're a sinner, now just stop. Stop doing it. Mm. And there is no either no Holy Spirit or that gets buried in practice. And there is a sense of like, just white knuckle it. And that is what divides people against themselves. It, 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 and, it, and it cuts off the uh, appeal to God for deliverance and, and, and help. So that is a recipe for despair. And I have seen it go wrong in that respect. But again, my sense is that that's not a low enough anthropology. The Bibles, uh, I have as a person who clings to the distinction between the law and the gospel, while I have the sort of pneumatology and experience of seeing people experience all sorts of holiness and victory over besetting problems, I also um, am on guard against trusting in that in and of itself. Like I feel like to trust in one's own growth or to make one's growth the center of the Christian life is dangerous, um, deeply dangerous, rather than Jesus Christ and what He has done for me, rather than what He is doing in me. It doesn't foreclose what He is doing in me. Mm. So I want to say that I think that the the, the expectations you have uh, and the the moral uh, codes inscribed in the Bible often serve to drive us to our knees, to crush us of our independence, and to create a deeper dependence on God. What is impossible? with man is possible with God and to, to cry, Lord have mercy and to move into a deeper dependence on God and his Holy spirit to, you know, work all sorts of magic. And that said, I do want to acknowledge that the new Testament, especially is full of visions of sort of 
what growth looks like. I just happen to see them as descriptive rather than prescriptive, that the second you're trying to turn them into a formula for self-improvement, you have completely contradicted their purpose and made them into a means to an end rather than a gift that God gives to those he loves and who he's forgiven. So, I hope that doesn't sound like me talking out of both sides of my mouth. The low anthropology, I believe, sets you up as a Christian to look at the world and yourself and see, given what I'm like and given what other people are like and have been like toward me, how unbelievably awe-inspiring and wonderful, like wonder with a capital W, and beautiful and that it is that God moves with such power and mercy in the world, and there are so many acts of goodness and uh, you know charity on offer, and that I've seen it in my own life. And so you start to approach the world from from a perspective of awe and wonder rather than of entitlement and disappointment. Yeah, that sort of leads into the next question I was going to ask you, which is about a couple of cultural features <laughs> that I kept on thinking of as I was reading your book, and in in one sense you. You have this. You have these great footnotes, and you had a, a great footnote that was sort of related to cancel culture, mm. um, though I don't think you name it that. And so I wonder if you could just maybe riff on two these two cultural features from the perspective of low anthropology. First is our obsession with celebrities mm. uh, outside the church, inside the church, and then related to this, our struggle to separate the good things that bad people do uh, or to appreciate the good things when it's revealed how bad the person is who did them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, do we stop watching Kevin Spacey movies? Do we stop reading theologians who are racist? So I guess cancel culture would be a way of talking about that. So those are the two kind of cultural features I'd love to hear you talk about from the perspective of low anthropology. First is our obsession with celebrities. And secondly, this kind of cancel culture element that we've seen. Yeah. Uh, f- fascinating stuff. Cause I, celebrity is all around us and it is, I mean, my friend, uh, my editor, actually, Caitlin Beatty, just wrote a book yeah. called Celebrities for Jesus. And yeah, we had her on the podcast. Oh, she's she's fantastic. And, and you know, there's something deeply discordant about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the American celebrity culture. And here I am, you know, promoting a book. So, <laughs> worst of sinners, chief of sinners. I think our um, what we do with celebrities is we try to make them into the exception to the rule and then uh, and kind of as an object of worship and aspiration. And then when they turn out to be just as human as we are, we just, we get to um, then use them a second time by making us mm-hmm. feel better about ourselves. Well, at least I'm not like them. And I think it's very, um, it's a cyclical, it's almost a I can't help describe it as something almost sick. Though, of course, there are some element in which, you know, uh, great artists and actors and musicians and, you know, beautiful people, what have you, there there are some gifts that they're giving the world that I think that are, can be appreciated. And I don't want to, like, I don't think the kingdom of God is a world in which, like, no one is ever appreciated for the gifts they've been given. But our American celebrity tends to be like this misplaced religious impulse that uh, denigrates everyone involved. And then there's a lot of money and influencing around that that just makes it even more dehumanized. So that is evidence to me that the, the, of low anthropology, we do this, we, we take the good and beautiful things uh, and we just turn them into. Uh, they're opposite. <laughs> and we leverage them for our own personal self-justification or just straight up condemnatory impulses and judgmental things. So I, I think that that's, that is part of what it means to be a person with a low anthropology. That sin nature plays out in this respect royally. Mm-hmm. 
The cancel culture thing, I mean, I, I really believe that low anthropology evens the playing field. And so uh, oftentimes what you see in a cancer culture situation is, is, listen, I think it's born out of pain a lot of times as people who don't feel like they have any kind of, uh, that, that, that certain folks don't have any accountability and like, let's, let's, we can finally call people to task for things that they've done and said and say it's not okay. And I sympathize with the pain that I hear underneath a lot of cancel culture. Where it goes wrong it always is when it forecloses any chance of redemption no matter the offense, it is going to run up against problems when it comes to Christianity. It just will, mm-hmm. that that we do believe in forgiveness. And like that is just the end of the day. It doesn't mean we believe in replatforming or whatever have you, but we do believe in forgiveness. A low anthropologist looks at the issue of talented people or as you said, bad people making good things or good people doing bad things. And it simply is not, A, it's not surprised but B, it sees it's Nick Cave is the, who I quote in that. I say maybe maybe the uh, the the quality of a work of art can be measured from by the distance it had to travel from the artist itself, herself, his self, uh, to get to you and I. So the fact that you know despicable sinners are capable of works of great beauty to me is is actually an, an opportunity for hope. Like then maybe I could do something great. And the fact that incredibly biased and wonderful, gratitude-filled children of God are capable of acts of malice and um, and uh, bigotry, I think is, again, uh, evidence that uh, we all are in need of God. And no one is, um, uh, there is no silver bullet or magical formula that we've yet to discover that will ever replace the blood of Jesus Christ as the great reconciliatory uh, necessity of the human race. Yeah, I love that's helpful to think that (laughs) there's no silver bullet. It's not going to be found in the next book I read or the next podcast I listen to or the next sermon by so-and-so, you know, that um, it's it's found in, in the mysterious relational dynamic of getting to know Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, which sort of leads me to this next question, which is that in your chapter in doubleness, you do give us something like a theory of change that people change when their desires do when one addiction or emotion is supplanted by a different one. So of course this reminds me of Thomas Chalmers's phrase, the expulsive power of a new affection. Mm. And, you know, you write about sort of the gospel cultivating gratitude, helping us fall in love with Jesus and setting us free in that way. Um, so the problem is not that we lack information. And I think we've heard this sort of thing before, the heart reigns over the head. But what would sermons or churches or discipleship ministries, how would we approach those differently if we operated with the priority of the heart as a low anthropology seeks to do? Uh, That's a great question, Justin. I, I think, yeah, I, the, uh, the chapter on doubleness asserts with no uh, qualifications that human beings are emotional creatures, first and foremost. That doesn't mean we're not intellectual creatures, but we are first and foremost emotional creatures. If you want to reach someone, you have to reach their heart. Motivated reasoning is such that, uh, that we, we decide in a lot of ways what we think based on how we feel. And I think that that is a thoroughly biblical understanding of uh, that's also borne out in social science, and I try to bring it to bear. It's Augustinian in the sense that you are what you love. I mean, that is, right. um, and if you that the, the the result of the fall is that our love is, is is sort of disordered, and we love the wrong things too much and the right things too little, or in the wrong way. And so, yeah, change uh, is usually some form of new uh, desire, new love, 
coming in. My, uh, my little brother always gives the example of he was he was addicted basically to war, World of Warcraft to the extent that it was uh, you know um, ruining his marriage and making him absolutely he was crippled in finishing his PhD, and he said you know that, that yes there was consequences he was suffering and yes his wife had told him you've got to stop this that you're lying you're you know you're running around basically with this computer game, and um, it didn't actually change until a, a new game came out that he liked more, but it was just happened to be less addictive. And I think there's hope in that because it means that our desires do change and they are malleable in certain ways. Uh, and yet it also doesn't um, send us down the sort of primrose path of thinking that just a change in information will change anything. I mean, my I think I say it somewhere in there, but I think the two great change agents in life are desperation and love. And they work together in the life of a believer. I mean, desperation usually is the law and love is the gospel. And hmm. these things uh, give us enormous hope for how, I mean, in terms of church-wise, I mean, I, I, I happen to think that long sermons that are basically trying to pass on enormous amounts of information about the first century or the, you know, 8th century BC are are they might be interesting but i think they're when it comes to impacting the person they're largely um you know water off a camel's back or a duck's back or whatever i think that storytelling illustration any that's the technology of the heart music if you want to reach people on a level that they cannot explain, but somehow moves them. I, I, even I think it was Tim Keller who said, "Like I know that when I'm you know, I'm preaching a sermon, if they're if there's I'm fine if they're taking notes at the beginning, but if I, they're still taking notes at the end, then I've mm. failed." Yeah, that's. Good. And what he means is, and this greatest, you know, we, we preach the gospel, and that's the how do we find our way into that story? That's that's the preacher's job. How do we provide examples and illustrations that are authentic and not you know pat? That's the preacher's job. And so, yeah, I think a low anthropology-based view of ministry is, is focused squarely on the heart, which means it's preaching is, is uh, it's not anti-expository, but it's predominantly illustrative and story narrative and uh, with, the, with, the, with the hope of uh, engineering an emotional encounter with God. <laughs> I mean, that's the, mm. it's not manipulative in that sense. That's what, where right, people get, yeah. oh, you're manipulating me. It's like, well, hey. What's so bad about it? you're being manipulated by the God of the universe? I mean, it's it's not um, the end of the world, I don't think. But better that than be, you're being manipulated all the time emotionally by this, that, or the other. Here's uh, the gospel, and it is an emotional uh, story. It is an emotional set of truths and propositions. Like, So that's okay. Uh, and I, I just want to see uh, tears are in my mind, and laughter as well, but tears are... Uh, not a bad thing when it comes to the preaching of God's word and when it comes to the discipling of human beings. Mm. Well, last question, and it is, uh, I wonder if you, how you would characterize um, this book in relationship to your larger project, uh, Mockingbird Ministries, Seculosity, all, all of the things, Mockingcast, all the things that you sort of do. Huh. Well, how would you describe that larger project of uh, what gifts are you trying to give to the larger church? And how does this fit in with that? Oh, thanks, Justin. Um, well, I think I'm. I don't. Uh, I'm not. I don't think of myself as like an incredibly original person uh, or thinker. What if I have any 
facility that God's given me. It's I like to, or at least what I like to do is I like to translate and find fresh words for old truths. And, um, you know, that, that means sometimes you get it totally wrong, but this book is an attempt to translate a Christian anthropology, a Christian understanding of the, of, of human nature into terms that, that are emotional terms and, uh, just contemporary terms, uh, to really to take three steps back and say, why would someone want to believe or why would belief in God be both urgent and compelling in the first place? I wanted a book that was sort of accessible on that front. So I, I happen to think it's more accessible, or at least I tried to cast a slightly wider net than I would usually do for the quote-unquote Mockingbird audience, um, because I, I lack in my own ministry books that, that are that entry level, that are gut level and smart and not you know dumbed down, but are I want people to feel seen and heard and understand, oh, this is why someone would want to be a Christian in the first place. Mm. So I, when I hear from people that they, oh, I want to give this to so and so, that's that's I feel like that's that's what I'm after. Seculosity is was was an attempt to really to translate justification by faith um, into contemporary language, and this would be an attempt to translate sort of yeah original sin bondage of the will just creatureliness into contemporary language but really it's it's even to get further back from that and to try to make a case for god that is emotionally intelligible or to make christianity emotionally intelligible for contemporary uh, i guess westerners americans what have you so yeah i i wanted a i wanted a book that could be useful for the purpose of the kingdom it's almost like a pre-evangelistic book that also pointed people toward the great hope of the of the of the universe, which is God, and is you know revealed in Jesus Christ. So, the book is Low Anthropology. Our guest has been David Zoll. David, thanks so much for writing this book and for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's been a joy. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andrea Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org, or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.